Welcome to Beacon Baptist Church of Lexington, South Carolina. We trust today's podcast will be a blessing to you. This morning, I want us to uh, begin, which uh, begin a uh, series of messages found here in Psalm three. And uh, I want to preach on the subject, and I, we may not get to the title yet, but I'll go ahead and give it to you. Uh, I want to be preaching these next couple of services out of this psalm on a subject entitled, What Many Got Wrong About God. What Many Got Wrong About God. And we see that in verse number 2, where the Bible says, Many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him and God. But before we get to that statement and before we get to how wrong that statement is for the child of God, I want us to uh, take this morning and consider some things by way of introduction out of this psalm. When we come to this text uh, this morning, we come to the third psalm. I think that's pretty obvious this morning. Uh, But what may not be so obvious is that we come to the third psalm that is in the first of five books that make up the Psalter, the book of Psalms. I don't know uh, how many of you may have paid attention to that when you read the Psalms, but the Psalms is not one book of Scripture. It is five books contained in one Psalter. The first book, if you look at chapter number one, your Bible may even say book one. And it, the, the first book of that uh, that the Psalter is, uh, that uh, the, can, the, the first book can Prizes of Psalm 1 through verse number or through uh, Psalm 41. Amen. And so we come to the first of the five books that collectively make up the Psalms. And this Psalm that is uh, the Psalm that is before us, Psalm 3, is a very interesting Psalm in God's Word. And I, I say that it's interesting because Psalm 3 is a Psalm that uh, is a Psalm that contains many first in the Bible. For instance, this psalm is the first psalm in which we find the word psalm appear in its text. The superscription of Psalm 3 says that it is a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. The first two psalms bear no such moniker as calling themselves psalms specifically. And I believe there's reasons for that. I think part of which is how general the truth is that you find contained in Psalm 1 and 2. But this psalm's not only the first psalm in which we find the word psalm appearing in its text, but it is also the first psalm that is attributed to David of the many psalms that he wrote, and is the first psalm that is attributed to any uh, any particular penman by their name being given expressly in the psalm itself. Psalm 1 does 
not have the name of a penman expressed in that psalm, nor does Psalm 2, but Psalm 3 is the first one to where we can come to a psalm in God's Psalter, in this, in this collection of psalms, and know that this one was penned by David. The Bible says that it is a psalm of David. It is also a, it is also the first psalm that has a particular occasion that is attached to the psalm in the superscription as to why it is penned and the circumstances uh, that were transpiring in the penman's life at the time that it was penned. Here in our psalm, the Bible said that what David was experiencing in his life that caused him to write the words of this psalm was that he was forced to flee from Absalom his son. The Bible says there it's a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. So we know now because of that superscription, because of that statement that is given as a heading to this psalm in the scripture, not only who wrote it and God declares to us who wrote it, but also why and when it was penned. And so it is a first in that regard. The occasion of this psalm is said to be a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. This would make that, if that is true, that would make the biblical time frame of this psalm being penned somewhere between 2 Samuel 15 and 2 Samuel 18 where we have the Old Testament record of Absalom's plot to take over the throne of Israel from David who is reigning as the king. Absalom the king's son plans a coup and uh, seeks to take the throne uh, from David and is momentarily successful in doing so. David, because of this plot, is forced to flee for his life. I personally believe that we see evidence in 2 Samuel chapter number 15 and verse 13 through 26 as to the very moment that this um, psalm is likely uh, to be penned. Turn with me to 2 Samuel this morning real quickly. 2 Samuel 15. I don't have time to uh, I don't have time to <coughs> read all of these thoughts together if, if if you uh, are someone that wants to understand a little bit more about this psalm, you can always uh, go home this afternoon and include 2 Samuel 15 uh, through 18 or sometime this week uh, in your Bible reading to give you an idea of what is transpiring here. But as you look at 2 Samuel verse, uh, chapter 15 and verse 13, we find that David is actively on the run from Absalom and that his advancing band of men who are no doubt seeking to kill him and take the kingdom in a forceful and bloody coup are coming behind him and they are uh, seeking those things that we, that we read in the text that they are. They want to deprive him of his uh, kingly position. As he flees, we see that David is still, is still fearful, very fearful even, and believes that there is no hope for him to live unless he flees. Notice what he says here in chapter number 15 and verse number 13. The Bible says, And there came a messenger to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel 
or after Solomon. In other words, their hearts have become attached to him. They have inclined themselves to him. The kingdom now is uh, removing their deep-seated love for their king David, and they are attaching their love to Absalom now. And the Bible says here that he is fully aware of that. A messenger come to David in verse 15 and tells him that the hearts of the men of Israel are after Absalom. Look at verse 14. And David said unto all his servants that were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee. Remember, this psalm was penned when David fled from Absalom his son. David said in verse 14 of 2 Samuel 15, he said, Let arise and let us flee, for we shall not escape, or else escape from Absalom. Make speed to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring evil upon us and smite the city with the edge of the sword. Now notice this. The Bible says, and the king's, and the king's servant said unto the king, Behold, thy servants are ready to do whatsoever the Lord the king shall appoint. And there's a lot of preaching in that verse. I'm not going to take the time to do it this morning. But look at verse 16. The Bible says, And the king went forth, and all his household after him. And the king left ten, ten women which were concubines to keep the house. And the king went forth, and all the people after him, and tarried in a place that was uh, that was far off. Let me make this statement. We have seen in those verses, David flees, and he flees with a heart full of fear, expecting that there's no hope left for him, that he will, unless he flees, be slaughtered along with his men by Absalom and his advancing band of men. But however, in verse 17, uh, we see that David, uh, uh, that there is a time where David and his men take shelter in a place where the Bible says is uh, far off. The last couple of words of verse 17 says they tarried in a place that was far off. And they so they go to that place. They find a, a shelter, if you will. They find a place to lodge temporarily. And the Bible uses a word that we, I don't know how much we use in our uh, day as much, but uh, the Bible says they tarried there. In other words, they stayed there for a while. They encamped there. They abided there. Then, as we read verses 18 through 26, David, while he is still being very careful and knowing that they aren't out of the woods yet, if you will, that Absalom still wants his throne. And therefore, because of that, David and his men are still actively in the threat of losing their life. In verse 18 through 26, we find that something changed changes in David's mind. I don't have the time to preach those verses, but if you read verse 18 through 26, in particular, look at verse number 25 with me. I believe it highlights this. But in the previous verses, let me give you, uh, let, let, let me remind you of what's taking place. David leaves in great fear. He spends just a little while tearing in this place that is afar off, abiding there with his men. And then once he departs from that place, in verse number 18, where he takes his servants and all of those that are mentioned there, and they pass on, and all of this account that takes place between verse 18 and 24, those things take place after he has been fearful, after he has encamped in a place far off and tarried there. But now look at verse 25. It seems as all Almost something has happened that has changed David's perspective about his circumstances. Look at verse 25. The Bible says, And the king said to Zadok, 
carry back the ark of God into the city. If I shall find favor in the eyes of the Lord, notice these words, He will bring me again and show me both it and his habitation. Look at verse 26. But if he does say, I have no delight in thee, behold, here am I. Let him do to me as seemeth good unto him. Now let me remind you, David here is fleeing for his life. He has been terrified at the threat of losing his life on top of losing his kingdom. But something has happened. Something has changed in his mind to where he is no longer in fear as much to the point of we must leave or Absalom will kill us. But now he says, I have confidence that if it's God's will, I will go back. Do you see how his, his, uh, his emotions seem to change from being very heightened in fear to almost now being even keel and steady and calm and at peace? He even makes a statement that again is another great message for another day that, that God let God do whether he chooses to save my life or whether he does not. Whether he chooses to restore me to the throne or whether he does not. Whatever God chooses is to do, let him do as seemeth good to him to do to me. Something has changed in David's heart that has caused him to be in a position of peace. I believe personally that what changed for him is that he, he spent some time with his God. And I believe we find his prayer recorded at least in part in Psalm 3 as he calls upon the name of the Lord. And you say, preacher, why do you believe that? Number one, because verse 17 says he, he tarried in a place that was far off. And in that time where he was abiding, in that time where he was staying stationary and just kind of laying back, and laying low, if you will, uh, he begins to enter into some peace. I don't know about you, but there's been times in my life where just one trip to my prayer closet, just one uh, word breathed in prayer to my Savior has changed my emotions entirely from being fearful and fretting and doubting and worrying to all of a sudden my heart is filled with the same confidence that David's was that God, let God's will be done. He'll be right in whatever he chooses to do. But I believe primarily that we can find that this prayer has been part of what worked on David's heart because the emotions that we find in 2 Samuel 15 are displayed for us plainly in the first couple of verses of this psalm. And then the confidence that the prayer renders is also, uh, is also uh, seen in this psalm as well toward the end of the psalm. And what is in the middle between David's problem and David's prayer, if you will, is the fact in verse uh, number uh, 4 where he says, I cried unto the Lord with my voice and he heard me out of his holy hill. Amen. And so that prayer David exclaims in this psalm gave him the confidence to be able uh, to say what he says later on in verse 5 through 8. I laid me down and slept. I awake for the Lord sustained me. I will not 
not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. Thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone. Thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. And so on he goes. But he realizes that in prayer, amen, uh, he was able to call upon one that was able to do what he could not. And that brought David great peace. Amen. So I believe we can find those sentiments there in 2 Samuel chapter number 15. But I want you to notice a few things with me as I've already said by way of introduction in this psalm. Before we get to the main crux of the message that we find in verse 2 and beginning in verse 3, I want us to notice in verse 1 and 2 some things that we must notice before we figure out anything about what all of these people that David mentions here got wrong about God. First of all, I want you to see with me this morning David's problem. We see that David's problem, first of all, was a personal problem. You see what the superscription says there prior to verse number 1? This is a psalm of David. It's personal to him because it's his psalm, his problem. But then the Bible says when he fled from Absalom his son. Can I say this morning uh, that this psalm was personal to him, amen, because there this was more than just a problem for a king within his kingdom, uh, the kingdom that he loved. But this was a problem, amen, that existed within the kingdom because of his son. I don't know if you can get more personal than that. To be betrayed, not by a friend, not even by a foe, not by somebody that you're generally acquainted with, but he was betrayed by his son. A boy that was raised upon his knees that David had given everything for and had lived a life in front of a man, at least for the majority of that life that Absalom had seen. Uh, that would have been it would have been indicating a man after God's own heart. Now I will say this this morning, and I don't know if I will say this again the rest of the series. I do believe that the re and I believe you can find it in the scripture. I believe we can I believe we can very easily make this declaration this morning. I believe what David is experiencing here is as a result of his sin. Just a few chapters before this account is found in 2 Samuel 15, just a couple of chapters before we find David committing gross sin, giving in to a sin of adultery, giving in uh, to, uh, to try to cover that adultery, murdering uh, the husband of the one that he had committed adultery with. And we realize that it wasn't just the baby that was in Bathsheba's womb that he had impregnated her with in an adulterous affair that died. But David would lose four of his sons because of his sin. Amen. Prior to this, we find David has already not just simply lost a baby in the womb, but he has lost Amnon, his son. And soon, as these events transpire, we will also find out that David is going to lose Absalom as well. I believe we find here David calling out to God from the weight that has been placed upon him, the burden that has been placed upon him by the hand of God as a chastisement for his sin. 
You, but by the way, let me make this statement. I realize that sometimes when we see and God does not act this way, but for David, for some reason, God chose to do this. But let me remind you whether you seem to be losing things in your life because of your sinful living or not, God does not turn a blind eye to a people that belong to Him, that choose to rebel against Him. God always chastises for the, as a result of the sin in our life. He may choose to do it different ways. He may choose to do uh, more, uh, may choose to chastise more publicly with those that like David who served him in a more public manner. But can I just simply remind you that there will be no sin that any of us that are saved by the grace of God will, uh, will engage in. That there will not be a chastening hand of God that will respond to that sin in your life. You have not pulled the wool over God's eyes, so to speak, with your sin. I'll say this. If you've never called upon Jesus to save you, if you've never been born again, you may, you, you may not experience too much, of, uh, too much penalty for your sin in this life. But can I remind you, whether it seems like you get away scot-free with your sin in this life or not, whether it seems like there's ever any problems that come into your life because of your sin or not, Friend, if you're not saved by the grace of God, whether you get anything in this world or not, there is a world to come. Amen. There is a place for you in hell where you will suffer the punishment of God under the wrath of God, not only for every sin that you commit, but for the primary sin of your rejection of Jesus Christ as your Savior during the days of your life. Any man, woman, boy, or girl, amen, I want to make that real plain this morning. Any man, woman, boy, or girl that does not give their heart to Jesus on this side of the grave. We'll regret it on the next side of the grave. Amen. There's no bartering with God. Once you get there, it'll be too late. Every decision for Christ that you'll ever be able to make will happen on this side of eternity. On the living side of eternity. But here we don't find a man that is not a, uh, not a believer suffering for sin, but we find one who is a believer suffering because of their sin. He is so perplexed here that it is not only a personal problem, but I'll say this, I believe what we're seeing here is a practical problem in David's life. Look at what he says in verse number one. He says, Lord, I will say this, I believe David started out right. Amen. Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? David's here, he's not saying uh, that this is the first time he's ever experienced folks that have entered into his life that has caused him trouble. And by the way, this is not talking about a simple irritation or a difference of opinion. When David here is talking about trouble, he's talking about trouble that means life or death. He's talking about trouble that means good or evil in his kingdom. He's not saying, Lord, uh, that this is the first time I've experienced folks troubling me. He says, no, the problem is, he's telling God, I, I, I've lived in this thing long enough, David, I believe, is saying... 
And I'm just paraphrasing, but I believe what David here is saying. I've lived in this thing long enough. Amen. I've gotten pretty used to people troubling me. I, I've been king long enough to know that you're not going to please everybody. And there's always going to be somebody, amen, that wants to, uh, that wants to do something, that wants to uh, have some kind of insurrection. There's always in a position of authority, there's always problems that must be dealt with. David's saying, that's not what bothers me. I expect that. But what is bothering me is how quickly those that are troubling me seem to be increasing. Remember I said just a moment ago, I believe that this is a practical problem. And the reason why I say that is because while I hope no one in this building know, knows what it is like David to be personally betrayed by a child, especially in the way that David is being betrayed by his son in our text, I believe that the feelings of, of betrayal and issues caused by people who have erected themselves as enemies against us is sadly a feeling that many people know all too well. Amen or oh me. This problem is one that all of us have some practical knowledge of at at least one time or another in our lives. Every one of us can identify with what David is saying in verse number one. They're talking about being troubled. Amen. Not only is this a personal problem for David, not only is it a practical problem in David's life that we can all identify with, but I'll say this as well. I believe that this is a proliferating problem. Notice what he says in verse number one. He says many, not only is he talking about how they are increased that trouble me, how their number is increasing, but then he goes on to say many are they that rise up against me. This is not just a few. This is not just one. This is many that are rising up against David. It's a proliferating problem. It is a greatly increasing problem. Not only does David have enemies, but he has enemies that seem to be increasing, and the number of them seem to be growing above and beyond his ability to control the situation. I believe that David felt this way when his enemies no longer consisted of those outside of the kingdom, uh, of those who wanted to destroy him and the nation. But now added to those outside of the kingdom, from those that are without the kingdom, if you will, being added to those are those from within the kingdom. Now he has enemies within his own kingdom that wanted him dead. These are not just pagan enemies now. These are his own countrymen. These are those that he's given his life to serve as their king. Now they want him dead and they want the kingdom all to themselves. This band of enemies from within uh, were being led no less than by his favorite son. I make that statement pointedly and from my personal opinion because I believe if you study David's relationship with Absalom everything that Absalom did David tried to give him as much slack as he could because he loved him now David did not did not make excuses for his sin but he tried to love his he tried to love his son even in his sin without compromising what was right David did cause Absalom after he murdered Amnon he, uh, he uh, caused Absalom to go into three years of exile as a punishment for his sin but after three years David allows him to come back home 
when, when Absalom dies, when he is killed by Joab, we find one of the most heart-wrenching portions of Scripture that you'll ever find as King David gets the news that Absalom has died. This son of his who has caused him to flee, this son of his who wants to see his daddy dead despite everything David has done, the same son that has taken his choices of men and has turned some of them and won their hearts and won the, 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 the hearts of his nation that God had put him over as their king. That same son, after all of the betrayal that he had committed against David, when David <laughs> sees the messengers coming from the battlefield, the Bible tells us that every time they came with news, the only thing David was concerned about, he made this statement, he said, is the young man safe? Oh, after everything on the battlefield, all he was concerned with was whether his son was safe. And when they, he gets the news where they said, I hope that all of the enemies of Israel and all the enemies of David would be as that young man is, indicating that he has been eliminated as a threat, that he has been murdered. David does not rejoice that he's the king again. Without question. David does not rejoice that now his future as the king of Israel and even the hopes and the, the, the safety of the nation is secured. David's not just interested in himself. He's got an entire kingdom to worry about. But we don't find him rejoicing. You see him with a broken heart cry out in great sobs saying, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son, I would have rather died for thee, Absalom. This man loved his son. He was personally affected by his son. But, the, but I believe when David here talks about how he needs the Lord's help because his enemies, those that are troubling him, are increasing, and many are they that rise up against him. I believe the hardest part of it all, it's not just that he had enemies from without that seem to be increasing. Not only does it because he has enemies from within that seem to be increasing, but when they are led by his boy, the son that he loves so dearly, I believe that is on top of everything David has dealt with, a gut-wrenching blow to this king. The only thing he can do from this moment forward is cry out to God, and we find him doing that in this psalm that we're going to be looking at in these days. I believe... That as we look at this, this this morning, we see not only David's problem, but because of David's problem, we see David's prayer. I will say this, and I'm glad that it seems that even though David had a great problem, he had an insurmountable problem, it seems, that he's, he's dealing with something that none of us probably will ever have a clue of what is weighing upon his heart and upon his mind and upon his emotions in this moment. I'm glad to report to you that as heartbroken as he was, as fearful as he was, as discouraged as he was, David knew who to call upon to get some help. Amen. 
We don't find him calling upon even his mighty men. Even though we know, according to the text in 2 Samuel 15, uh, that some of his mighty men are with him in this moment. He doesn't call upon those men that had great physical might that have even looked at David and said, David, you don't have to flee. We're ready to do whatever you tell us to do. Our tar heels are dug in deep, David, and we will fight if you tell us to fight until we all drop dead on the battlefield. He's got his mighty men. He's got men that are ready to fight for him until he or they or both of them die. But David doesn't turn to them. David doesn't turn to Zadok the priest, even though we know he was there. Because 2 Samuel 15 tells us that him and David had a conversation. But more than turning to some that seemed to have strength in the arm of the flesh to handle his problems, and even turning to one that may seem as a priest of the Most High God uh, to have what it would take spiritually uh, to handle the problem, more than just his men, more than just his people, more than just the preacher of his day, if you will, he turns to one that has more of an ability to help him than his men do, as mighty as they may be. He turns to one that has more power uh, to help him than even God's man, the priest, uh, could. Amen. The Bible says there in verse number one that the first word that issues from a heart, broken heart of King David in prayer is the word Lord. By the way, I'll mention this. This is, remember I mentioned all those first that Psalm 3 is. Psalm 3 is also the very first time in the Psalter where a psalm is considered a prayer. The Bible says here he calls on the Lord. Can I say this this morning? This prayer was a directed prayer. The Bible doesn't tell us that he's turning this way or that way. He tells us the direction that he turns his attention to. He directs this prayer to the Lord. That capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Jehovah God. Not only is this a directed prayer, he knows who to turn to and he turns to the right place. But I'll say this, this is also a desperate prayer. I believe as we look at verse 1 and 2, we see how desperate David really is. As you read the, the entire first two verses, it sounds like a desperate plea from a desperate man. He says, Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. Many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God. We see desperation in those words. I'll add this. I believe we see desperation in the fact that the very first sentence that David breathes in prayer is one that literally is an exclamation. I've always found it very interesting when I study the Bible, when I come across passages that end in an exclamation mark. Every word of Scripture, because it is God's Word, should scream off of the pages to the heart of the child of God. But the Holy Ghost, when he put that exclamation point as this, as our Bibles were preserved in our English language using, I believe, our English punctuation. There's some people that say that they don't believe that is inspired. I disagree with that. 
I disagree. And there's great men that if I called their name even among our own ranks, you would know who they are that say they don't believe that, that the chapter divisions are part of inspiration. That they are man's efforts to divide the text. One man I'm thinking of years ago has preached in this pulpit. They don't believe the chapters are inspired. They believe it was man giving us a way to address where we wanted to go when we preach and teach the Word of God. But I believe even those are inspired. I believe when the Bible here gives us an exclamation point, what it is doing is it is telling us that God means to put more emphasis upon this portion of Scripture than even on others in the text, that God is exclaiming this to us. And I believe one of the reasons in the Psalms that we find an exclamation point is not only that God wants us to t tune in and look even closer at what is being addressed here, but I believe as the Psalms are, a, are, a pas are passages of Scripture where God inspires the for true, genuine feelings of humanity as man opens up their chest and they show who they really are, as David does here in an honest prayer before the Lord, we really see who David is, and he exclaims this first sentence. He desperately calls out to God. David here is seen crying out to God in desperation. He is desperate for the assistance that only God can provide in his trial, in this trial that he's facing. Warren Wearsby commented on how the first word of this prayer speaks to its desperation. The word Lord, because Wearsby said that this prayer very abruptly begins with the word Lord. There is no leading up to this word. He begins with the name of God. He says, like Peter sinking into the sea, David did not have time to go through a long liturgy for his own life and uh, for his own life was at stake and so was the future of his kingdom. David knew that God was a very present help in trouble as Psalm 41 will, uh, 46 1 will later uh, inspire for us to read that God is a very present help in trouble. But David who penned those words knew that from practical experience and when he was in trouble and when there were many that were increasing that troubled him he called upon the one who's a very present help in trouble it was a desperate prayer it was a directed prayer but I'll say this as well I believe it was a declarative prayer look at verse number one with me again he says Lord and I promise I'll land this here in just a minute Lord how are they increased that trouble me Many are they that rise up against me. Many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God, Selah. In his prayer, David makes a couple of statements to his enemies. While he mentions the count of those who have situated themselves as enemies against him, he also speaks of their conversation concerning him, not just their number, but what they're saying about David and to David. Verse number two tells us what they say 
The Bible says, many there be which say of my soul. That word soul there encompasses everything that makes David who he is. It is the whole of David. It is his mind, his will, his emotions. It is his body and everything that is inside. Literally, they're saying of David and all of the essence of who he is that there is no help for him and God. This word soul not only lets us know that they spoke this to David, but that it got in his mind, and worse than that, it got even down into his heart. That David very well could have been contemplating the idea, I wonder if there's any help for me, even from God, during this situation. Do you know why David calls upon the Lord? It's because even as he has heard again and again and again, David, there's no hope for you. David, even God won't be able to help you. David, nobody will be able to stop you, stop us from doing what we're doing and getting the victory over you. Now, can I just say this this morning? If you hear something again and again and again and again before long, you'll start to believe it. You'll start to at least consider it. I believe David as a man after God's own heart would be someone who knows that he has help in God. But uh, you never know where David's mental state very well could be. Not only going through this trial, but just recently coming off of the greatest sin that David has ever committed in his life. And yes, we know he got right with God. I thank God for Psalm 51 being in my Bible where David called out to God and he said, create in me a clean heart. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Purge me with hyssop and all of the things that he says there in Psalm 51. Begging God for cleansing from his sin. And more than that, not just begging him for it, but getting it. Hallelujah. But I believe you'll agree with me that in the moments where we've messed up the biggest, sometimes even knowing that God forgave us is not enough to make us in our feelings feel better about what God may do the next time we pray. I hope that's not just me. You know, in reality, I, we all know when we mess up, God forgives. But you remember... A time in your life where you've messed up as big as you ever have, and you've been as broken as you ever have in your sin. When, if you were anything like me, despite all you know, by the way, the book of Psalms is a book of feelings. Like I said, it's God allowing us to see man's heart. That's why I love the book of Psalms so much. I identify so much with what is said in this book. It helps me because when I see David uh, feeling the way he's feeling and experiencing what he's experiencing, it makes me feel better about how I feel. It's kind of like how I feel when I read when I read Romans chapter 7 and Paul talks about his struggles with the flesh and battles with sin. That makes me feel better. Amen. Because if Paul battles with his, no doubt I battle with mine. It's good to know somebody like Paul battled with the flesh. Amen. But here we find David broken and no doubt this, this time where he comes, and, and I'm not saying this is the first time that he's prayed since, since, that, uh, since, that, uh, since he committed sin and got right with God, but this is probably the first thing that he has dealt with as major as this since that sin.
Before that sin, David sat very comfortably in his palace. Remember, the reason why he sinned is because he refused to go forth. He stayed laying on his bed at the time when kings go forth to battle. Instead of on the, being on the battlefield, David enjoyed a bed of ease. Everything was easy before his sin. He, get, he, gets, he sins, he gets right with God, and now he experiences this great trial. And I wonder if David was anything like me that I'm going to bow because I know I've been forgiven. But the whole time you pray, wonder, how could God, after what I did, hear me when I need him now? I don't deserve to be heard now. I don't deserve to be helped. With what I did to God, I deserve everything I'm experiencing right now. But if there is even a glimmer of hope, David does not want to miss out on it. And he chooses, as I implore all of us to do, even when you feel low and discouraged and don't even feel like praying or even feel like if you prayed, God would hear. Can I just encourage you and implore you this morning to do what David did and pray anyway? Amen. If there is a glimmer of hope that God will hear, I want him to hear in hell. Amen. David here is being told time and time again, David, there's no help for you in God. I believe the word soul lets us know that David is partly uh, listening to it. He's partly receiving it. The Bible here says that there's a conversation between his enemies and David. They're speaking things to him. In that, I don't just see David's problem and David's prayer, but lastly, this morning, I see David's pondering. I don't have time to deal with everything that I'd like to deal with. But notice in verse number 2, I'd love to preach this. I'll just have to rework it into another message one day. Amen. Look at verse 2. Many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God. Now, I want you to notice that little five-letter word at the end of verse number two. What's the word? Y'all say it out loud with me. Selah. The word selah there is an interesting word, and by the way, it brings us another first for Psalm 3. This is the first time in the Psalter that the word selah is used. I'd love to preach to you about what this word means, but just briefly as we close this morning, Hebrew scholars still today debate over what this word means. But their ideas come in, the two, in, the, in, in terms of two different trains of thought. And Brother Tommy, they are as contrary to each other as they can be. They say this word either means, and it does in, an et, 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 in its etymology, it means to lift up or to raise. It has the idea of a, of a raised mound of uh, dirt or of soil. It has the idea, it carries a word picture of a ladder, something that takes you higher and lifts you up. In other words, the word selah here, as these psalms were designed as the Hebrew hymn book to sing later on after their penning, this word selah would give instructions to how to sing this song. In other words, when you get to this point, sing it a little louder, sing, take the pitch up an octave, sing it a little higher, place emphasis with your voice on this statement. 
The word Selah here actually, as it does in the multitude of Psalms, actually gives us a great division point of the Psalms that include these Selahs because it breaks apart the Psalm here in three different ways. Verse 2, 1 and 2, that would be one thought. Verse 3 through 4, that would be another thought. It ends in Selah. And then verse 5 through 8, it concludes in Selah. But not only do scholars think that Selah means to lift up, to get louder, to get higher in your pitches when you sing it. But remember I told you the two trains of thought are completely opposite of each other. The most, uh, the, the most uh, accepted thought as to what Selah means is to pause. One means to get louder and the other one means don't say anything at all. That's why there's some debate on this. And if you study out the word as I've tried to, there is proof for both. I personally believe that it is both. When you sing it, sing it louder and with great anticipation, great, uh, great emphasis, because what needs to be said does need for us to ponder what it says. Here is where I conclude the message this morning. The word Selah, I, I, uh, I want to mention this. As I was studying for this message, I pulled a very precious Bible off of myself, and while it belongs to me now, it hasn't always belonged to me. This church knows that my wife's pastor, my dear mentor, Brother Wardlaw, earlier this year passed away and went to heaven. Priest in this church, I believe we all loved him. Brother Gary, I pulled his Bible that I have in my possession off the shelf. <laughs> you know what he had written next to the word Selah in his Bible? Stop and think about it. That's what he wrote in his Bible. In other words, he is saying that when these enemies of David are saying there is no help for him in God, God says through David's pen, David, you need to stop and think about that for a minute. <laughs> They're telling you that there's no help for you and me. Stop what you're doing, David. And ponder that thought just a minute. Over these next few weeks, what I want us to do is do what David does. If you look at verse number 3 there, it begins with the word but. You know what David does? Verse number 2 into verse number 3, he sealas. He stops and thinks about it. Amen. And as he thinks about what they're saying and on his personal experience with his God, he found several ways that those guys that are speaking this to him and he partly believed it for a while, there's a contrast that takes place. Amen. David says they're saying there's no help for me in God, but... Amen. There's no help for me in him, but as I've thought about it, as I've pondered upon it, Amen. as I've given it careful consideration, Brother Tommy, 
I've discovered differently. I've realized that as I walk through memories, down memories lane, and walk through the days of my life, as I observe circumstance after circumstance, I realize that they couldn't be uh, any more wrong if they wanted to be. Not only is there, uh, is there not no, I know that's not good English, but it's good preaching. Amen. Not only is there not no help for me in God, all the help that I have, if I'm ever going to have any, is going to come from God. And it has come from God. So over the next, I told you, I just wanted to introduce it this morning. <clears throat> over the next few weeks, the Bible talked about that many were saying to him, there's no help for them in God, for him in God. So the next couple Sunday mornings, we're going to look at what many got wrong about God. Thank you for making us part of your day. We would love to hear from you. Please find us on Facebook or at our website, bbclexington.com.